friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm going to mix it up with my co-hostesses. I'll have Maureen Ferguson with me later in the hour. She will join me to explore an important topic, fatherhood, with a Catholic father of eight and 33 grandchildren. His name is Stephen Gabriel, and he'll be joining us to discuss his many books on fatherhood, including his latest called The Indispensable Dad. But first of all, I have my TCA colleague Lee Sneed with me, and we're going to talk about the Mississippi abortion case that's going all the way to the Supreme Court this year. Some say that this may be the cause of reversing Roe v. Wade. That would be really amazing and a huge, huge thing for our country on so many levels. So we'll be talking to her husband, Carter Sneed. He's a legal scholar. He's a professor of law and the director of the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He's also the author of a book called What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. He recently wrote a great piece in Newsweek called A Time for Courage on the Supreme Court. So, for the record, this is the first time that I've had a couple on the show, a celebrity couple at that, my co-hostess, <laughs> Lee Sneed, and her husband, Carter. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. So, Carter, we're full of questions because this case, coming up from Mississippi all the way to the Supreme Court, it's garnering lots of attention, as it should. It's a case of tremendous import, both legally, politically, culturally. I mean, it's it seems to have, it seems to be carrying everything on its little back in this case. In fact, I mentioned to my husband today that I was interviewing you and he's like, wow, he must just be so, so impressed with the enormity of the case and what it could mean for the country as a whole. Is that how this case strikes you also, Carter? It's an extraordinary moment. It is uh, the first time since Roe v. Wade itself that the Supreme Court has agreed to answer a fundamental question, namely, what is the authority of the state to restrict abortion and to protect unborn children? The, the precise question that the Supreme Court has agreed to answer is whether or not the state is permitted to impose any prohibition prior to viability. When I say prohibition, I mean total prohibition. I don't mean a side constraint or something like parental involvement or informed consent or a waiting period. I'm talking about a complete ban on abortion prior to viability. Is that ever constitutionally permissible? And that's the question that the court has agreed to answer. And that is a fundamental question that we've not gotten clarity on, you know, in the almost 50 years that Roe v. Wade has been on the books. And I think that the court here basically has a binary choice of either abandoning the failed project of regulating abortion from the Supreme Court or doubling down on the most corrupt and lawless decision of the 20th century. And even amongst people who are pro-choice, the law, that decision, Roe v. Wade, is troubling legally. This is, my husband is a lawyer as well as a doctor, and he told me this. He said, you know, in law school, we study Roe v. Wade, not just uh, from the perspective of whether this is a good thing for the country culturally, right, or philosophically or ethically, but also as a legal decision and how faulty a legal decision it is. If you, if you study Roe v. Wade, 
And, and the, the first thing for the listeners to understand is what Roe v. Wade said was that the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which or one particular clause of it, the due process clause, which simply says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law. They said that that provision of the Constitution forbids states from extending any meaningful legal protection to unborn children. And the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868 in the wake of the Civil War to try to restore something like equal justice under law to our brothers and sisters who'd been enslaved prior to that war and prior to the ratification of those amendments and was meant to promote equality and equal dignity under law. And no one in 1868, no one in any state, no one in the legislature, none of the framers of the 14th Amendment believed that it had anything at all to do with abortion. In fact, when that decision, when that 14th Amendment was ratified, abortion was illegal in every state in the country, Hmm. whether by statute or by common law. And so the suggestion that that language prohibits states from protecting unborn children is is impossible to defend with any responsible theory of constitutional interpretation. So even if a person is pro-abortion rights as a policy matter, if they're intellectually honest, they have to admit that it was an unbelievable overreach on the part of the court, arrogating to itself the authority to settle a question that every other country in the world just about gets to resolve through its political process rather than having it settled in an absolute way by five unelected judges. Carter, in your uh, recent uh, Newsweek piece, you highlight the case Brown versus Board of Education, which did away with segregation. Why Why did you choose to use that piece as another example in your, in your analysis? Thank you for the question, Lee. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Uh, as always, an astute question from the brilliant and talented Lee Sneed, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. The reason that I picked uh, Brown versus Board of Education to frame my recent Newsweek article on the on the Dobbs case is because, well, for one thing, the cert was granted. That is, the the court announced its decision to accept uh, oral argument in this case and to decide the case on the anniversary, the 58th anniversary of the decision of Brown versus Board of Education, which was a case that overturned a precedent that was even older than Roe v. Wade, a case of precedent called Plessy versus Ferguson, which established the morally atrocious and unconstitutional standard of separate but equal for uh, segregation of children in public schools. And Brown versus Board of Education, despite the fact that this was an old precedent, despite the fact that there were entire segments of the country that depended upon this precedent in ways that no one depends on Roe v. Wade, the court acted courageously and decided to apply the Constitution as it's understood to undo the injustice of segregation in public schools. And I think that it's, it's valuable because it shows an example of courage of the Supreme Court acting to undo an old and relied upon precedent, which I actually don't think Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey had anything like the reliance that Plessy versus Ferguson had. But also it shows the courage to simply apply the law as it's written without the temptation to do politics under the false pretenses of constitutional interpretation. Carter, you say that that when the judges in Brown versus Board of Education decided this, they took a lot of courage because the country depended, many parts of the country depended on this system in a way that, that we don't depend on Roe. Now, if you're reading the commentary from the left media or the what we call the mainstream media, which I think is fairly is very left on this uh, on this question, it sounds like the if Roe falls, then the sky fell on us. 
and women are going to be chained to their stoves uh, and barefoot with a big belly. What is your argument against that? Yeah, so it's interesting. The, the first point I would make is that the reason that folks defend Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey based on a reliance justification, which is part of the multifactorial test for what we call stare decisis in the law, which is to say it's an invitation, although not a requirement, for judges to consider the practical consequences of overturning a prior precedent. So one of the elements of stare decisis that courts consider is how much reliance has been built up upon this past precedent, whether it was rightly or wrongly decided. The fact that those who support abortion rights are talking about stare decisis and reliance to me shows that they're not willing to defend Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey as a matter of constitutional interpretation. In a way, they're they're seeding that argument and saying, well, even if they were wrongly decided, we have to keep them in place because so many people have relied upon them. Well, I think that's there's no evidence at all, by the way. And the argument's actually even more, I would argue, insulting to women than that. The argument is women's flourishing depends on access to abortion. Women are not going to be able to achieve what they achieve in our culture, in our communities, unless they have access to abortion. And this is just simply an insulting falsehood. I mean, women don't need abortion to be successful, to be, to flourish to, in our in our society and the social economic life of the nation, which by the way is why it's so tragic and heartbreaking for that valedictorian, that high school valedictorian in Texas to say that if she, if her contraception were to fail or if she were to become pregnant via rape, that none of her hopes and dreams would matter anymore. And that's why abortion is necessary. It's heartbreaking that a child who's obviously that intellectually talented uh, has that misconception and thinks so little of, of her capacity to be a successful human person in life that she would require the right to take the life of, of her unborn child. But well, let me just say, though, that the other reason why the argument is actually not a serious argument on the reliance point is because if Roe v. Wade is overturned on the grounds in which it's most likely to be overturned, namely the Constitution is silent on the question of abortion and therefore the matter goes back to the states for resolution to the political process, what will likely happen is we'll get a 50-state solution or uh, to the problem of abortion in which states like New York and Illinois will continue to promote abortion in dramatic ways and states like Ohio and Indiana and Alabama and Mississippi will be more protective of unborn children. And for better or worse, overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey is simply the beginning of the battle to, to bring about a world in which everyone is protected under law and welcomed into life, born or unborn. And we can't really even count on the thought that people are so generous hearted and, and so loving of the unborn that, that we'd actually come up with, with laws that would really protect them, right? I mean, yes, in some parts of the country more than others, but I don't particularly feel that hopeful myself that if Roe fell, there'd be, you know, a rush to the <laughs> to protect the baby because unfortunately we have become very accustomed after all these decades of abortion for 40 weeks, we become very accustomed to that narrative and we've internalized that narrative that women are only free if they are free to eliminate their own children. Yes, well, it's certainly easier for uh, politicians to pass laws protecting unborn children that they know are going to be struck down by the Supreme Court. It will be a new moment, for sure, politically, when states have the actual authority, hopefully, God willing, to protect unborn children and their mothers, by the way, because another lazy slander is that the pro-life movement doesn't care for mothers or they only care for babies as long as they're in the womb. And that's simply false. As we all know, the Sisters of Life and nonprofits like the Women's Care Center Center and men and women, both lay men and women and, and, and religious folks as well, spend many, many millions of dollars and, and hours to 
protect and defend the lives and flourishing of women, children, families uh, across the board from conception to natural death. So, Carter, if you could look into your SCOTUS crystal ball, Mm. and given the new makeup of the Supreme Court with your former colleague, Amy Coney Barrett, how do you see this case shaking out? And is there any way for the court to chart a middle path? Yeah, so I should start by saying that I have no inside information about anything that anyone on the court will do. I've not spoken to any of them about it. And so I'm merely speculating based on publicly available information. But one thing seems clear to me, there are six justices on the Supreme Court right now who understand that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey are not required by the Constitution. They're not in any way connected to the Constitution's text, history, or American legal tradition. And they are clearly on their face not worthy of sustaining. So the question for those six justices, at least five, five takes five to change the, uh, to overturn Roe and Casey, is will they have the courage to apply principles of stare decisis in a fair and balanced way to draw the conclusion that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were not merely wrongly decided in the first instance, but in fact, are not workable, are not doctrinally stable. I mean, the the history of Roe and Casey is a history of the court grasping for different normative propositions, the right to privacy versus the right to liberty versus the right to equality, different legal standards, different status for the right in question, fundamental right versus a protected liberty interest. The law has been all over the place, never settled in one spot. And in fact, as recently as the June Medical Services case, we learned that you don't even have five justices on the Supreme Court who agree what Planned Parenthood versus Casey stands for. You had a fractured opinion in June Medical Services. And then finally, that people have not come to rely on this, that a a fair application of stare decisis also counsels in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade, as does a serious reflection on the legitimacy and integrity of the Supreme Court itself. So the question is, will, will five, at least five justices have courage to do the right thing, to do the intellectually honest thing? And then the second part of what you asked, Lee, was whether or not the court might chart some kind of middle position between overturning Roe v. Wade and Casey versus sustaining them. And I don't think, honestly, that there's an intellectually honest way to do that because the law in question is a 15-week ban on abortion with an exception for the life of the mother and also a medical emergency exception. And also, I think some unfortunate exceptions for fetal abnormalities, which I, I as a policy matter, I, I don't support that. Just form of discrimination against children with un- unborn children with disabilities. But nevertheless, it's a pretty modest law, 15-week ban with those exceptions. And the only way the court can sustain this law is to undo Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which categorically says that the court may not ban abortion prior to viability. It says even more strongly, it says the court may, or the states may not unduly burden a woman's right to abortion prior to viability. And obviously a, a total ban is at least an undue burden. So the only way for the court to affirm this law is to change Planned Parenthood versus Casey, to overturn it, change the law and come up with yet another lawless standard that has nothing to do with the constitution. And so if they do that, I'll be deeply disappointed uh, because the only intellectual honest thing, intellectually honest thing one can do in this moment is to overturn Roe and Casey in their entirety. 
that's really the only option given the nature of the question presented and the nature of the law being considered. Now, you mentioned, Carter, that, that the justices have to be very brave to do this. What kind of bravery are you talking about? Are you talking about moral bravery, physical bravery? Should they be afraid for their, their, their posterity, the way that they're perceived in history, or should they be afraid for their persons? I, I worry that it might include all of those things. I mean, people are so animated by abortion rights, and they're so passionate about abortion rights that it wouldn't surprise me if there were some actual threat to their persons for doing the right thing and overturning Roe v. Wade and Casey. But certainly the principal form of courage that's required here is the courage to be a judge and to not simply do politics because it's popular with elite culture uh, in the New York Times editorial page to do politics to try to preserve one's personal reputation or some misguided notion of what the reputation of the court should be. If the court wants to preserve its reputation for integrity, it should do the right thing no matter what the consequences are. I mean, and, and, and that's what it means to be a judge. And the structure of the, the federal courts are designed precisely with that in mind. Judges have life tenure. Judges are politically insulated. The whole point is that to create a structure in which they can be brave and do their limited job, which is simply to interpret the Constitution. Speaking of being brave, Carter, we see all the time that the Biden administration in their press conferences never uses the word abortion, which is strange considering I think they're they're being called out in some of the liberal progressive media for doing this after you have, you know, celebrities wishing they had had abortions in public. They, you know, there's a shout your abortion movement. What do you think? Do you think the case is going to bring this issue to a head with the Biden administration? It's interesting because you're exactly right. Jen Psaki, the White House spokeswoman, won't use the word abortion as far as I can tell. She talks about the right to choose. She talks about women's health care. She does not say the word abortion. I'm sure they've focus grouped it and they realize that abortion is a word that conjures a lot of negative feelings, even in those people who, who describe themselves as pro-choice. And so I think that it is, it, but it's, it's part of the fundamental dishonesty of the abortion rights movement, that they can't even say the name of the thing that they're supporting because to acknowledge is to acknowledge the monstrosity of it. And so I think it'll be interesting. Now, it's possible if we think back to 2007, when the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed the federal partial birth abortion ban of 2003, up until that moment, we were told by the media, by the elite culture, that women would die if partial birth abortions were banned. And immediately following the announcement of the decision by the court, five to four decision to affirm the federal partial birth abortion ban, we were told by NARAL and, and others not to worry because there are always safe alternatives to partial birth abortion for women seeking an abortion in those circumstances, which is precisely the opposite of what they said during the entire multi-year litigation over the question of partial birth abortion. So I think it won't take very long for people to realize once Roe and Casey are overturned that what we're looking at most likely is simply resetting to 1973 or 1972, in which the political process is the fundamental theater of contestation and disagreement among the sides on the abortion question. And in places like, as I say, New York, Illinois, et cetera, it's likely that abortion will be available, widely available. And in other states, it will be more difficult to obtain, but it will be returned to the political process and resolved in the way that, again, it's resolved elsewhere around the world. I read the text of the law, the Mississippi law that's that's in question here, and it, it spoke to me very strongly because 
I'm a radiologist, and I, a lot of my patients are fetuses. They go on and on in the, in the text of the law about the fetal development, all the different ways that the fetus at 15 weeks, at 16, at 17, at 18 weeks, becomes more and more recognizably human or more maybe evocatively human. Things that, that remind us, you know, things that are very special to us, right? Like uh, smiling and, and scratching, things that we associate with newborns and how these things are happening very, very early in pregnancy. Why does why do you think the framers of this law wanted to make sure that the humanity of the fetus was so apparent in the law? I mean, I was actually surprised. I guess I don't read a lot of laws, but I was surprised that a law would have all these long descriptions of, of these little f- humans. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great example of how the law serves as a teacher and as an aid to the moral imagination, because it's, it's always hard to remember uh, that there are brothers and sisters uh, who we don't see or we don't recognize either because they're in the womb or because they live around the world or they live on the bad part of town or or, or they are, as Mother Teresa said, uh, in disturbing disguises of poverty and disability, that we, that, 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 that we need our moral imagination cultivated. We need things to remind us to be able to see our brothers and sisters, to understand the claim that they have on us as members of the human family. And so I think it's a nice example of how the law can be a functional aid to, to, to moral imagination to help teach us how to see our brothers and sisters when sometimes they're obscured from us by time or space or appearance. That's very lovely. I like the way that you that you quote uh, Mother Teresa. Because it is true, it's a kind of disguise when the baby is in the womb. It's, it is a kind of, we're separated by this curtain, but that's that's a child on the other side. It's very apparent to me as a radiologist, and I'm glad that it's becoming more and more apparent to other people. Now, the state in the law said that it had an interest in protecting women's, the mother's health, because, and, and this also I thought was is a really good point, because abortion and the later stages of pregnancy are much more harmful both physically and psychologically to the mother. Yes, that's right. And so there's an unfortunate feature of the lower court, the district court, that the federal trial court's decision in Mississippi in which they referred to the state's interest in the mother's health as, quote, gaslighting. Now, it's a very unseemly thing for a federal judge to use language like that to simply dismiss the the intentions and, and the stated intentions of the state. So that that's an interesting atmospheric feature of this case. But yes, absolutely. So the reason they mentioned that, by the way, is because in Roe v. Wade, the Roe v. Wade, which includes, by the way, a lot of false or unproven assertions about history, about the safety of abortion, about the moral and ontological and physical status of the unborn child, all completely fabricated by Justice Harry Blackman. There was no trial record. There was no evidentiary hearing in the Roe v. Wade case. There was no evidence presented below about any of these things. So that means everything that the court asserts, every factual assertion it makes is simply made up and untested by the adversarial process below with the rules of evidence and the adversarial process to test its veracity and reliability. And one of the things that the court says that's false, or I should say not false, but unproven in Roe v. Wade, it just asserts without evidence that abortion is just as is safer for women than childbirth, mm. early abortion is safer than women yeah. than childbirth. That's never been actually demonstrated. And there's a very important article by Dr. Byron Calhoun or OBGYN from West Virginia University uh, published in the 2013 Lineker Quarterly showing how 
This, in fact, has never been demonstrated. The, ev- the, the, the only evidence that's ever been marshaled to suggest that, that abortion is safer than childbirth is a comparison of apples and oranges and incomplete data sets. And it's, it's just simply rests on false assumption after false assumption has never been proven. But nevertheless, that's become a talking point of the abortion rights movement and a talking point of the late Justice Ginsburg in every single abortion case that she had heard. She's, she'd always make sure to say, isn't it true that abortion is safer than childbirth early on? And therefore, arguing that it's it's actually unsafe to women to ban early abortions, which is again, never been proven. And you're a physician, you know that even better than I do. But in the second trimester of pregnancy, Roe v. Wade says it's more dangerous, abortion's more dangerous for women. You, the state can regulate for the safe uh, purposes of advancing the safety of women. And that's what the state of Mississippi is picking up on in their, in their statute. So the debate about the safety for women, the good for women, the, you know, the worthiness of every life, these are things that, well, the three of us, anyway, agree on. Probably a lot of our listeners are agree there, too. But for the non-lawyers of us out there, is there a certain good that comes from handing this issue back over to the states and keeping it within a voting issue or, you know, and not just on the, you know, Supreme Court? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. I, I would say this. There are risks and complexities of allowing the political process to address the question of who counts as one of us. That's a very, it's an interesting and deep and hard question. And I, and I, I, I sometimes worry about whether or not it's legitimate to present that question to the American people and to say, let's vote on who counts. Hmm. Let's vote as part of the, uh, who's a member of the human family. And my colleague, John Finnis, has recently written a couple of very interesting and provocative pieces in First Things, arguing that in fact, the word person in the 14th Amendment includes unborn children, and therefore abortion is allowing the state to fail to protect unborn children, but extend the protection of the laws to postnatal people is a violation of equal protection. That's a very complicated question, and we probably shouldn't spend time on it. But it's worth noting that he has an interesting argument in that in that vein. Uh, I'm not sure that there are any justices on the Supreme Court who who share that view. It's never been expressed by any sitting member of the U.S. Supreme Court. But I would say it's certainly preferable to return the question to the political process than simply to have five unelected justices write the unborn child out of the protection of the law in perpetuity, right? If that, I mean, the, the, the status quo right now is unacceptable. The status quo is unborn children are not entitled to the basic protection of the law, including the law against private lethal violence. And returning the matter to the, to the, to the public square will certainly allow them to have greater protections in those, in those states that uh, support such protection. And also it'll have an interesting effect, I think, on the, on the polarization and the pressurization of our political debate at the moment. As I said several times, in many other countries, people are allowed to vote on the question of abortion. And at least the losers in that vote feel like they had a chance to be heard and had a chance to persuade their fellow citizens, even if they lost the vote and they can they can resolve to continue to fight and to try again next time. But if the Supreme Court says we've settled the question and you're not allowed to vote anymore or talk about it in public square, that radicalizes everybody. That radicalizes the abortion rights people. It's an all or nothing struggle to protect abortion rights. And then it's an all or nothing struggle for those of us who care about unborn children and their mothers equally to try to vote for a president, vote for senators who are willing to compose the Supreme Court in a way that undoes this tragic and egregious injustice. Well, Carter, we've only just scratched the surface of this incredibly interesting case, but we're out of time already. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee, for interviewing your husband with me. That was really fun. (laughs) We have to do it again. I hope that you can convince him. You can convince him to come on again because there's so much to talk about. If 
you want to hear more, learn more about uh, Carter Sneed and his work, you can go to law.nd.edu. And thank you again, Carter. Thank you. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-host and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. You know, with Father's Day just coming up next weekend and within the year of St. Joseph, we're excited to focus on fatherhood with a dear friend, Stephen Gabriel, who has written a number of books on fatherhood. His most recent is called The Indispensable Dad. It came out last year and it's a must read. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be with you. So, Stephen, this is Maureen, and we really want to get to your latest book, but I have to confess my favorite book of yours is also a favorite of my husband's, and it's the book that you wrote about 10 years ago called To Be a Father, 200 Promises That Will Transform You, Your Marriage, and Your Family. And could we start with that book, if you don't mind, because it's it's always relevant, this book, and it's really quite a moving book for fathers and families. Can you tell us what led you to write these books with the focus on fatherhood? Well, you know, it's kind of funny how these things happen. I mean, I was in the midst of uh, being a husband and father with, with uh, eight children, and uh, most of them were still at home at the time. And um, a uh, actually, this is a the second, uh, rather, really the third edition of this book. It was the the first version was entitled "A Father's Covenant," and it was published by uh, Harper San Francisco. And then after that had gone out of print, uh, Spence uh, picked it up, uh, Spence Publishing, and we and we added some promises and, and changed the, the title to uh, to be a father. But when it had first come out, there was a little book out there that you might remember called Life's Little Instruction Book. <laughs> it was a it was a big hit and just little sort of promises that the author made on a whole variety of topics and. And it just occurred to me that, you know, I should do that for fathers. Um, and that's sort of how it happened. And uh, just over a period of time, uh, uh, different promises would occur to me, and I would jot them down on whatever sheet of paper was nearby, and then eventually put them all together and organized it, and there you have it. Well, well, this little book is the perfect gift for Father's Day, if any of you wives and mothers out there are looking for a Father's Day gift. And again, it's called To Be a Father, 200 Promises That Will Transform You your marriage and your family. And one reason I love it so much is that it has tiny little nuggets. It's it's a very digestible little book that really it can be used in prayer time. Um, it's just got these little pearls of wisdom. And, and I understand, I guess you're an economist by training, but you make the point that there's really no professional training to be a father. <laughs> so, um, so this is a great little book. And maybe I'll just give our listeners a little tip taste of it. You start off with promises to your wife. And the first, you start um, with romance. And you say things like, 
I will take you away from the kids overnight at least once a year. (laughs) Can you reflect on on some of these? Maybe I'll throw a few out and ask you to reflect on them. I love that one. (laughs) Sure. Well, on that, you know, that's a um, something that I just think is is critical. And it's it's so hard to uh, to pull off sometimes, particularly if you have a number of children and you have a busy life and all, all that sort of thing. What I suggest to young couples now is that they try to arrange something with one or more either other family members or friends so that you know you'll watch their kids when when uh, when they take off uh, for, you know overnight and then you know vice versa that you know you'll uh, that they'll watch yours so that it gives you an opportunity to get away and to have those conversations that you need to have and just have a romantic time with uh, with your wife so and it doesn't have to be super expensive but uh, just a chance to get away and decompress and and focus on each other uh, you heard me get excited when Maureen mentioned that one because it's I have found that it's very difficult to get away especially when the children are young but that every time my husband and I have managed it we have been renewed because that romance between the husband and the wife is is beyond valuable when one is trying to, to manage a busy household and we have so many balls up in the air as parents that unity between the husband and the wife makes everything so it makes so much more sense when there is that beautiful romance Unity. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind that this is really a gift to the children as well mm-hmm. when we do this because you know the, the best thing we can give our kids is a good marriage and so you know making that effort to allow your marriage to thrive is definitely a, a, a gift to the to the children how about this promise Stephen? you you say i promise i will work an eight-hour day and nowadays with the you the ubiquitous phone it there's not a bright line anymore it seems between the office and home our attention is so divided you know my husband's feet might be in the kitchen but his mind might be on the email he's about to go check or the email he just noticed that kind of disturbed his peace so what's your advice for fathers along these lines well basically it takes good discipline when i wrote that promise i don't even think i had a flip phone at the the time (laughs) But uh, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's so hard to get away from work, and you know it just takes it really takes discipline. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week, I think it was, where it was uh, there was a CEO of some company uh, said that he made the resolution to leave his phone in the car for a few hours when he got home from work, so that he could just focus on the needs of his wife and his family. And I thought, you know. That's, that's a pretty good idea. So if if you uh, if you can't be disciplined by you know when you bring the phone in with you, then that's a that's a that's a, a possibility. So uh, yeah, just you know when we get home, we really have to focus on on the needs of our uh, of our wife and our and our kids, and try to just leave this the work life behind. And it is difficult, but I think it uh, the uh, the dividends will pay off handsomely down the road. Stephen, isn't it true that the difficulty starts, though, with getting out of the office for many men? It's hard for men to break away. I mean, understandably, the... the, 
the work and you know bringing home the the needs of the family through their through their labor is such an important part of a man's of a man's drive and his life it's hard for him sometimes to break away and say this time at home is just as important as what I can bring with me when I come from the office it's true and you know I think that uh, we men have to uh, sort of discern when we're having trouble uh, leaving the office whether or not it's really us who are attached to our work and we're, and we're not really ready to, to put it down? Or is there really a genuine uh, need uh, for us to, you know, to, to stay that extra hour or whatever it might be? Because, you know, we, uh, you know, we frequently can just be attached to our work or, you know, maybe we you know, really like what we're doing. It's hard for us to, uh, to leave. And in some cases, unfortunately, it may be escape as well for, for some fathers and, you know, uh, they may, you know, you go home and, you know, at work things are kind of under control. You people <laughs> act sort of the way that you might expect them to act. And that's it. And they go come home, you got little kids bouncing off the wall and, you know, <laughs> what have you. And, you know, maybe you're just not ready to face that. And so we need to admit that, you know, really that's what's driving my decision here. And then, you know, take it from there. So, Stephen, this book, it moves from promises to my wife into promises to my children. Um, so let me just throw out a few of those and, and get your thoughts, um, if you could elaborate on these. How about, I will send you to a school that reinforces the values I want you to learn? Yeah, well, I think that's critical, uh, especially these days where many of the, uh, certainly many of the public schools uh, are, uh, are, are preaching values that that you know are uh, really quite different from from what we, we might be interested in, in uh, teaching to our children so I you know I think that uh, and it's a tough one because if we don't and I'll, I'll preface it by saying a couple of my kids went to public school so I mean the most important thing that influences our children is what's going on at home so you know there, there may be circumstances where that's that's really the best option for our family but we need to know what's going on and we need to sort of head that off uh, if we can by talking with our kids getting getting them ready for for some of the ideas and values that they may be facing uh, the school that they that they're going to and you know they can get this in private schools as well for that matter so um, you know, it's just very important that those that the school we send our kids to, to the extent that we can uh, do it, is reinforcing what we're trying to teach our children at home. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Stephen Gabriel about fatherhood. This week is Father's Day, this weekend coming up, and also this is the year of St. Joseph. Now, Stephen, besides your book, To Be a Father, 200 Promises, that is obviously a fabulous book, you also wrote a book uh, last year called The Indispensable Dad, and this book begins with ways that men can cultivate the theological and cardinal virtues through prayer, study, and frequent reception of the sacraments. You know, my husband and I are daily mass scores and I completely agree with this it's when it's when my husband in our marriage we only have five not eight children in our marriage it's when my husband became that indispensable dad I love that title that our family really started to to have sort of a unity of life I mean without the father it's very hard for a mother to carry that forward 
Absolutely. Uh, the father, really, research shows that the, the father's role is even more important than the mother's in terms of passing the faith on to, to the children. So, uh, you know, we, uh, we really need to recognize that our kids are watching us and really we're, we're their model. We're, we're their model for who God is. We're, we are their model for what a good husband should look like, what a good father should look like. And um, while we may not sort of see the fruits of that modeling uh, immediately, I most likely will see it down the road. So in, in your new book, you also talk about how fathers need to put their wives first. And this is something we touched upon a little bit earlier. You say their kids need to see that their dad is head over heels in love with their mother. So tell us more, why is this so crucial in building strong and nurturing families? And do you have any practical advice for how to set this motion in our homes today? And I know you're advising fathers, but a lot of our listeners are women. So do you have do you have some advice for us wives on this? How can we put our husbands first? And what do you think they need from us? Husbands need affirmation. Men need affirmation. So I think that's, that's important. But, uh, uh, you know, again, the the marriage is the cornerstone of the, of the family, and if we don't have a strong marriage, then the family is is weak, and it, you know it may well be uh, uh, heading for big trouble. So, for a father, from a father's perspective, we just need to put our wives first. We need to put them on a pedestal. Uh, our kids need to see us respecting them. We, they need to see us uh, being affectionate with, with our wives. It should, it should not be unusual for a kid to walk into the room and seeing mom and dad hugging or you know giving each other a a, a kiss or, or what have you. Uh, they need to, they need to know that dad just he, he's crazy about mom. <laughs> That's lovely. It's so true, right? It it creates that uh, that warmth in the home for the children that that certainty of affection. I think that children very often, especially when they're young, the children don't really see themselves as very separate from mom. So I think when fathers being affectionate with mom, they feel that very closely themselves, as though fathers being affectionate with them. Absolutely, I think it. It conveys a sense of security that, that the kids really need. You know, one thing you mentioned in your book is to guard against a spirit of criticism and to cultivate cheerfulness instead. Why is cheerfulness such an important uh, element for fathers? Well, I, you know, cheerfulness is reflective. Uh, it should be reflective of that inner joy that comes with knowing that you're a child of God. Mm -hmm. You know, if we have a, a, a deep faith, then... <laughs> The, the natural consequence of that should be a very deep joy that sort of uh, expresses itself in this external cheerfulness. Now, you know, we all have different dispositions and temperaments and what have you. And some people, you, I'm sure you know, are just sort of naturally cheerful and, and exuberant and whatever. And that may not be us, but there still should be that, that cheerfulness that communicates the fact that, you know, I'm in, lo I'm in love with our Lord and every reason to be cheerful. 
You also say it's important to take time with your wife regularly to discuss uh, the state of the family, kind of like an examination of conscience, to see what your current family life is or where you'd like it to be. Can you tell us, sort of practically speaking, how you and your wife have done that throughout the years? Oftentimes through walks in the neighborhood after dinner. Obviously, you can't do that when the kids are little and you, can, when you can't leave them alone. But uh, also uh, taking the time after dinner, maybe, you know, when the, the kids are doing chores or, or doing their homework or whatever, but not around necessarily. And, um, and just having... We used to, you know, have a cup of tea after dinner and just sort of prolong the meal and then spend that time talking about, you know, whatever we needed to talk about. And uh, it really helped a lot. And, of course, those those overnights can be useful for that as well, for maybe a deeper, uh, you know, a deeper dive into you know, what's going on in the family. And, and what do you mean exactly by the state of the family? What What does that mean to you? Well, what are the issues? You know, like Johnny is, uh, you know, is struggling in, in school. Do we have any decisions we have to make uh, along those lines? What about what about sports? Are we going to uh, go the travel sports route? Uh, that kind of thing. How many how many sports are we going to allow the kids to to play? I think that's a really important issue because you know I played sports and kids and, and uh, when I was a kid and my children do as well, but it can get to the point where it's uh, they can be disruptive of family life. So, you know, we need to make, you know, address that head on and, uh, you know, make some decisions along those lines. So uh, just, you know, talk about each of the kids, what are their needs, what are the issues, anything that we need to do, that kind of thing. You know, we're just uh, just about out of time here, but I, I have one more question. If we could jump back to the little book, To Be a Father, uh, which again is a great Father's Day present. My husband actually bought a box of them years ago and gives them out to different dads that he meets. And I recently, since a lot of my friends' kids are now having babies, I've decided that this is a great little present to give to the father of the new baby. You know, we shower the mother with um, various gifts for the baby and for her. But um, but I've decided I'm going to get a box of these little books and give them to the new fathers that, um, that I know. So, so one more little pearl of wisdom that you have is one of the promises to the children. And this struck me because my third child just graduated from high school and is heading off to college. So there's always a transition in relationship at, you know, around this time. And the promise is, I will pray for the wisdom to know when and how to let go of you as you grow and mature. And I think that's often a source of kind of teenager tension in the house because parents do struggle with that. So can you share your thoughts on that? We need to give our children Children, the freedom to to develop and to grow. They need to have the freedom to make decisions. Obviously, that that uh, freedom needs to be commensurate with their age and their maturity and, and what have you. When a uh, you know when our kids as they grow older, we sort of let the rope out a little bit more and more and more. And then, of course, in college, they're largely on their own. But, you know, it kind of reminds me of when our first 
kids went off to college and they, you know, we had rules, you know, when they were in high school in terms of when they had to be home and all that sort of thing. And then, you know, we really sort of gave them a lot of freedom in college when they would come home and they, you know, then they would be coming home at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> like, okay, okay, wait a minute. Let's, let's rethink this here. And so, you know, we had, we basically had to uh, re- revise how that we're, you know, we're doing that. But, uh, you know, we, we need to give them the freedom to, uh, to develop, to, to make their mistakes and to learn uh, as they grow and mature. Well, Stephen, sadly, we're out of time, but it's such a pleasure to have you with us today. And we hope to have you back again soon. If you'd like to order The Indispensable Dad or any of the books on fatherhood by Stephen Gabriel, feel free to check your local bookstores or online. So thank you, Stephen, and happy early Father's Day to you. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as we enter into anew into the Sundays of ordinary time. Over the last three weeks, we've celebrated the birthday of the Church on Pentecost, the Feast of the Holy Trinity, which is the model of the communion of the Church, in Corpus Christi, as we pondered how the Church draws her life from Jesus in the Eucharist. This Sunday, with two parables on the kingdom of God, Jesus speaks to us about the way the church grows. The first image is of a farmer who scatters seed on his farmland. Without knowing how and without effort on his part, day and night, the seed begins to grow, yielding the blade, the ear, the grain until harvest time. The seed does this, Jesus notes, of its own accord. This teaches us that the growth of the kingdom, the growth of the church is a spiritual reality. It's not fundamentally our work, but God's. Imperceptibly, patiently, constantly, it grows. The second image is the more well-known one of the mustard seed, which is very tiny as it is sown in the ground. But through that process of growth, Jesus mentions in the first parable, springs up and can become one of the largest of plants where the birds can come to dwell. The kingdom can be at times very small, seemingly insignificant, but Jesus says it contains within the power of God to grow and be enormous. Taken together, these images convey to us a sense of wonder that we should have with regard to the church as a spiritual reality and God's role in its growth. We're tempted to look at the church sometimes too much as an institution. It's a human organization that we must build like entrepreneurs build a business. We sing songs like, Let us build the city of God, which materially is similar to the ancients saying, Let us build the Tower of Babel. Jesus is saying by these two biblical images that we don't build it he does. The farmer certainly does a little of the work, sowing the seed and tilling the soil, but most of the work happens by what's contained in the seed, what's contained in the soil, and by the water and sunshine God provides. So it is with the growth in the church. God gives the seed of faith. He provides the water of the sacraments, the sunshine of various blessings, the nutrients in the soil like teaching and formation. But because God is involved, We should have confidence in every age. For me, the parable of the mustard seed is a great source of hope. Even though the kingdom begins very small, in the heart of one faithful person even, over time it can grow huge. This is, of course, what we see in how the kingdom began in the Annunciation, when out of Mary's yes, the seed with a capital S 
conceived within her by the power of the Holy Spirit, began to grow and eventually all nations would be embraced in the branches of his arms on the cross. We saw that this is what happened on Pentecost, when out of a small band of apostles, the church started and experienced extraordinary growth. We've seen this happen in the founding of parishes out of a few committed families, of religious movements and orders that began only with the founder, and in families where one person's conversion led to the conversion of so many others. We witness it in what is now occurring in so many African countries, and even in the south and southwest of the United States. We see it in the history of the Benedictines, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, Jesuits, Daughters of Charity, Missionaries of Charity, Sisters of Life, Dominicans of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the CFRs, and so many others. We see it in the explosive growth of focus on college campuses, the expansion of ministries like Word on Fire, the Augustine Institute, Dynamic Catholic Ascension Press, and others. What starts small, but with faith, grows. There's therefore always reason for hope. But at the same time, we have to confront the question as to whether what Jesus said about the growth of the seed has an expiration date. Even though we can point to success stories, many religious orders today, many parishes, even whole dioceses, are experiencing not continued growth but shrinkage. Just look at what's happening in many European countries, where once the faith was strong, but now there are few priests, few religious, and few practicing faithful. Look at what happened in Africa when the Muslims swept through in the 600s and the 700s. Whole dioceses were wiped off, such that they remain just titular sees that auxiliary bishops get as some type of symbol that they guide souls. Many U.S. dioceses today are closing churches and schools rather than building new ones. So how are we to understand Jesus' parables? If the church has shrunk in some places, the Lord has permitted it, not wanted it so that he could somehow bring greater good out of it, including giving all of us the opportunity to experience anew the full meaning of this parable, the beginning again, beginning smaller, like the new mustard seed planted from the tall tree. The truth is that when the church has become as big as a Middle Eastern mustard tree, many of us can forget the lessons God teaches us in these parables. When the church is huge, an enormous institution, many people can stay on the peripheries and neither share in nor contribute much of anything to the growth God wants to bring about, convincing themselves that others will do the work of planning, of maintenance, of harvesting. At a parish level, they can defer the responsibility to others to help pay the bills, to maintain the programs, to welcome newcomers, to spread the faith. When we become closer to the size of a mustard seed, however, we can't pass the spiritual buck in that way. We need to step to the plate. This is a grace. It's also a challenge. It's a, also a promise and image of hope. If we're in areas that by human indices are in decline, the Lord Jesus wants to make of us a living 21st century illustration of these parables. He wants us to have the opportunity to experience the exhilarating growth of the mustard seed. As we root ourselves in him, we have every hope that just like thousands of times before us in the history of the church, we'll get bigger again, and many others will be able to nest in the branches that will come from this union. Christian influence, rather than waning, will wax. 
but we must trust in God like the first Christians did, like the founders of religious orders did, like the pioneer generations of lay faithful in parishes who sacrificed so much to build churches on firm foundations did. This whole mystery of starting small and growing big is summarized in the Mass, as Jesus seeks to plant himself within us as a seed, as a grain of wheat on good soil that together with him can bear abundant growth. If we receive even a little piece of the host within us, we receive God and all his power. He wants to grow in us from that seemingly small start to transform us in such a way that with him living in us, we might transform the world. This is where all growth in the church begins. This is where all growth in the church is directed. So we prepare to receive Jesus this Sunday. Let us do so with faith in the parables he announces to us and cooperate with him as he seeks to grow within us and others patiently, imperceptibly, constantly. And through our yes, like that of the nascent church on Pentecost, grow the kingdom. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 